So I think the same thing's going to happen with indoor where people are producers, you know, they produce screens for the industry or the world. And in places where you can't grow outside or in California, as water, you know, gets more and more scarce, producers are going to produce. And so some of them they're going to look at, well, maybe I should do indoor because that's a good way for me to produce given the restrictions that I have, you know, on inputs and land. Today, we have an exciting bonus episode. I was lucky to sit down with one of my favorite podcasters, Tim Hamrich, for an episode of The Future of Agriculture. Tim and I talk about innovation and the Fresh Field Catalyst Accelerator. We hear from participants of last year's program. A reminder to all of you listening to this in March, the deadline for the applications is coming up very soon, March 20th. Enjoy the show and catch Tim and his great podcast, on the future of ag, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's jump in. All right. Now back to today's episode with Vani Estes, who's the vice president of innovation at the International Fresh Produce Association or IFPA. You probably noticed in our opening segment there that you heard more than just Vani's voice. And that's because we're going to play clips from some of the entrepreneurs and mentors that participated in IFPA's Fresh Field Catalyst Accelerator this past year. You see, Vani reached out to me several weeks ago about coming onto the show to talk about how applications are open for their second cohort of the accelerator. And after talking to Vani and hearing about how the first cohort went this past year, uh, I realized that this would actually be a really good chance to talk about tech and innovation in the produce industry just generally. Our conversation today covers some of the challenges facing the industry, including water, labor, food safety, traceability, quality, compliance, and a whole lot more. And you'll hear from entrepreneurs and industry leaders about things like differentiation and consumer preferences and indoor ag and traceability and automation and robotics, two of my favorite topics as of late. Before we dive in, though, I want to make it clear that the intention of the accelerator, the Fresh Field Catalyst Accelerator, is to attract companies that already have a product in the market somewhere. Now, that could be a market outside of agriculture or perhaps in agriculture, just in different crops like row crops, for example, or maybe they are already in produce, but just not in uh, a very widespread geography. And they're looking for more widespread growth within produce. But mostly they're looking for companies that already have some sort of traction with at least one product, uh, but maybe haven't directed much focus to produce yet and think that there might be some value there. So if that sounds like you or maybe someone, you know, applications do close very soon, March 20th. 20th of 2023. So if you're listening to this a day it comes out, you've got just about what a week or two. Um, I'm going to link to the application in the show notes. I hear it's very short to fill out. But if that's you or someone, you know, please uh, send that to them. And there may be mutual benefit to, to that. Well, you might remember hearing from Vani back in episode 270 of this podcast. Uh, to refresh your memory, she's held leadership positions at prominent companies, including DuPont, Monsanto, and Syngenta, along with startups, including DNAP or DNAP. I'm not sure how you say that. Emergent Genetics and Caribou Biosciences. She's got a BS in horticulture from New Mexico State and a master's in plant pathology from... You guessed it, UC Davis, the one, the only. In addition to Vani, you'll hear clips from some of the entrepreneurs and mentors from the program's first cohort. And these clips came from Vani's podcast, which is called Fresh Takes on Tech. If you're not already a listener, you might want to check that one out. I'll link to it in the show notes as well. 
All right, I'll drop you into the conversation here where Vani is setting some context for some of the areas of need in the produce industry for innovation and technology. One of the big things that we're seeing, and of course we're seeing this in in row crops as well, but climate change is having a huge effect on our crops. And so just looking at increase in drought, too much water, water at the wrong time, too much heat, too much cold, not enough cold, you know, all these different things are really have an effect on the different types of crops that we grow. And so we're having to, to breed faster. We're having to have different crop inputs so that we can make those changes and continue to grow the crops or grow slightly different varieties as the climate changes. So that's a, a really big one. Another big one is around sustainability pressures, partly because people know this food, like our food isn't always an ingredient, it's fresh. And so people know an apple and they know a strawberry. And so these are foods that they eat. So there's a lot of pressure from consumers, from investors, from boardrooms, from retailers to really look at how do we do this more sustainably? How do we use less plastic? We're a huge user of plastic because plastic works really well to protect the product from you know food safety issues, but we generate and use a lot of plastic. So how do we use less plastic? How do we have less waste? People have really focused on how much food waste there is around fresh produce because of its perishability. And then how do we grow with fewer emissions? One other area is around health and wellness because people are aware that eating our product can make them healthier and they're thinking about health and wellness. And so so all these things are kind of driving for more innovation being brought into the industry. Yeah. And I think, you know, you and I have talked before in... I think I kind of learned this from you, which is it can be difficult to attract startups to the fresh produce industry because they don't have the acreages, you know, if you're thinking like a per acre cost that like a Midwest row crop has. Was that sort of the impetus behind starting the Fresh Field Catalyst uh, in the first place? Yeah, what what I was really seeing, one was, as we just talked about, is that there was more focus on taking technology into the row crops because of the, the money, the uniformity, the high acreage, less focus on produce because there's so many different types of crops. And when you look at it, I mean, even getting like if you're trying to do your business plan and, and do your modeling and think like, well, how many acres and what are the margins and where does this grow? And, and just trying to do modeling of how much money you might be able to make or what's the total addressable market. It's really hard to get that information because it's all spread out. And so what I started thinking about was a lot of the solutions that we need for climate change um, and sustainability are out there in other markets, either in row crops or even in you know markets like banking or making cars or whatever. And so how can we bring those and, and bridge that gap to bring people into the produce industry and just make it easier for them, both through access and understanding and data? And, and now that you have kind of one, I don't know if you call them cohorts, but one group that's, uh, that's kind of gone through the process, what are you hearing from them as, as far as what's been most valuable you know, as far as the stage they were in and what they got from the program at that particular point? For a lot of them, well, everyone would say that as far as just kind of bang for your buck and fun <laughs> and learning and connections was the immersion week. So we have a week where we put everybody on a bus and we just drive all over California. This year, we're starting in LA and, and moving up to San Francisco and going to a lot of the producers along the way. We have receptions with, we have another one with Taylor Farms. We have different receptions where we bring lots of different companies together from the industry. So it's just, if you're ready to tell your story and to get in front 
of people, there's no better opportunity to get in front of these people and, and talk to them. So that in the surveys that I did, the after program surveys, that, that was everybody's favorite part. And I think for a lot of people, just seeing the scale of agriculture, we had nine different countries represented. And so we had people coming in from other countries and, you know, standing in the Salinas Valley and just looking at, you know, lettuce as far as you can see. It just, it was really fun to watch people's reaction. It really blew them away to see just the scale of agriculture in the U.S. The other big part that was really valuable was the mentorship. We picked someone to mentor each company and that was very valuable. And these are people that are usually on the board of IFPA or, you know, in C-suite of their companies. And so they're, they're mature people in the industry that can just make all these invaluable connections. So I think you had Roz from The Yield from Australia on your show. And so she's looking at strawberries and, you know, is in Australia. And so I paired her with Scott Komar, the head of R&D at Driscoll's. And so that was that was a good pairing for lots of different reasons. And, and I think you've got a clip of Dorn from UNFI. And so we paired him with Caitlin Fitzgerald from Sound Agriculture because she was really trying to understand the market and what's happening at retail. And so that's mostly what the program's about. We're not writing pitch decks for people and we're not setting your strategy. We're not teaching you how to do business or, or go to market. You know, we're really immersing people into the industry so that they have the connections and kind of understand how the industry works. Awesome. Yeah. And lucky for, for me, for us, you also have a great podcast that you've been able to document a lot of these interactions between mentor and mentee, and then just profiling a lot of the companies that went through. So uh, as we go through here and talk more about kind of what's going on in technology in the produce industry, you have been gracious enough to let me use some of these audio clips from Fresh Takes on Tech. And you just mentioned Dorn there, uh, and you did an episode with Dorn and Caitlin of Sound Ag, kind of talking about many things. But uh, what, what I kind of thought was really interesting was sort of Dorn's insight into the end consumer and and certainly a big difference. And you mentioned this earlier with produce than like your row crops is like the consumer has very direct feedback into what they want and, and their changing preferences need to impact the farm very, very quickly. And so anyway, let's uh, let's cut to this clip with Dorn. But first, what is UNFI? I'm sorry, I'm not familiar with that. They're a very large wholesaler. So they're the ones that I don't know all their customer lists, but they would buy from growers and then sell to retailers. So they're they're the wholesaler in between those two. And so Dorm has been with them, I think, for a number of years. He's also on our board of directors at IFPA. He was at Walmart for a long time. So he was a produce buyer. So he's worked on that side of it. And they also worked at Driscoll's. Um, I've been in the produce industry for 30 years, and I'm and much more familiar with uh, conventional plant breeding from my time with Driscoll's or, of course, all the GMO. Um, for the last half of my career, I've been um, either selling as a retailer or right now selling to thousands of independent retailers. And Bonnie, as you go through the research, every single time the consumer will tell you that the number one attribute that they're looking for is freshness. Now, freshness is pretty broad. And um, as you dig down to it, really what they want is they want consistency and they want great tasting. And, and what upsets them most is one, if they have a bad experience, and two, is the variability that they have. And so it's been a lot of fun working with Caitlin and, and understanding and learning from her. I'm supposed to be the mentor about how they're bringing 
better shelf life and better eating experiences. And at the end of the day, that's what the consumer is asking for. They're asking for a great experience and they're asking to not have the variability, which is the largest complaint. So a consumer won't tell you that they want shelf life. Um, but what they will tell you is that the number one attribute is freshness. And frequently they'll say that how long it lasts in my home. I'm fanatical about giving days of freshness back to the consumer. And that's either through better cold chain, uh, new technologies, better varieties, or it could be as simple as folding less days on hand on inventory. And so while the consumer may not say that she wants a tomato that has great shelf life, she absolutely says that I am frustrated when it doesn't last in my home. So this is kind of hitting it. The second thing that consumers say is when they say freshness, what they really mean is great eating quality. And so while they may not know it and express it, what we absolutely know is hitting number one on freshness and number two on the eating quality or the experience. It was what brings consumers back to purchase more produce. So that was Dorn Wenninger, uh, Senior Vice President of Produce at UNFI, the wholesaler. That's a good episode to listen to in general because Caitlin is also very dynamic. So I would recommend listening to that full episode. But I know one thing that Dorn mentioned later in the episode, I believe, was about uh, his excitement for some of these indoor farming systems and, and how that was going to have an impact on consumers because consumers were interested in that. And uh, Vani, it seems like that's been something that's that you've really been engaged with is sort of indoor ag. So has that been a, kind of a priority for IFPA or, or just something that you're kind of noticing as an emerging innovation that, that you need to be uh, up on? Well, I think both. Um, when we looked at our membership and, you know, we always have to be watching what's changing and what's new. And we started having a lot more members that were indoor farm. And then we've had, you know, a lot of the, the controlled environment ag, a lot of the greenhouse growers in Canada and in Mexico, like they've been members for a long time. But then part of the vertical farms, you know, like Aero Farms and Plenty and, and those companies have started coming in as well. And so we started looking at, is there a reason to get a group of people together and have a, a council? This is how kind of our committees are. So I run the CEA council that we just formed at the end of last year. So we're just starting to bring that group of people together and look at, you know, what are the issues that we could help solve? And, and so we just started seeing it as a community with, within produce that we felt like had its own identity enough that, you know, we need to see how we can help and be involved. Yeah. And I always find that where I need to check myself when it comes to CEA is I need to take off my West Coast lens that I have. I grew up in California and it's just so hard for me to see like how efficient it is in the field to think that we could get anywhere near efficient in, in an indoor environment and and kind of look to other areas and, you know, places like, you know, Dubai and, and, and you know, Abu Dhabi that are trying to, you know, figure out how do they grow any food there, uh, but also places like the Nordic region. And I noticed you had what I thought was called nettled, but apparently it's called net lead, which used to be net LED, I learned from your podcast episode. But uh, you had Casey Snyder. Can you talk about them? Yeah. So one, just step back a minute. So I was actually in Abu Dhabi recently at Aero Farms grand opening. And so it really, it, it gives you a great appreciation to go a place like that and look at the complete scarcity of water and there's no soil to grow in. And so it really does, like you said, you know, it gives you a different way of thinking about these types of 
technologies and where we can grow indoors. And I think Finland is another example of that. So NetLed is based out of Finland and their business model is a little different. They're developing technology that then they will license and kind of be turnkey for other people to be the producers. Uh, I'm actually leading a, a panel coming up at Indoor AgCon where I'm talking to people about the different business models. So that's definitely a change that we're starting to see in indoor as well as, you know, not everyone wants to be producers. It's really the part of the value chain that makes the least amount of money. So there's different business models. And uh, NetLed is an example of that where they're developing their own technology that then they will license out to other people. And what was great with Casey is that they were really, they were one of those companies that were so ready to launch in the US. And Casey lives in Finland, but she's American. And so she spends a lot of time here, but they're, they really got a, a lot out of the program of really understanding the industry and the differences here, because it's very different than Scandinavia. And they've, they've made some good inroads there, but they're not ready to launch in the US. Cool. Well, let's hear from Casey here. This past year, uh, June specifically, we completed our first commercial scale product. So that took place in Sweden. Uh, that was a partnership between the grow operator, Oh My Greens, and the Swedish retailer, Ika. And so in that perspective, Ika was interested from an um, ESG model. They wanted to be kind of at the forefront of the sustainable growing methods. And they looked for a partner that was able to fulfill the scale of herbs that they needed to produce. So that was really exciting and gave us our first opportunity to really see our system, our Vera platform work at full commercial scale. So now they're poised to grow uh, 2.7 million pots of herbs annually. 14 different varieties, and those will be sold in 340 stores throughout Sweden. So it's a, a pretty big deal. is a, a big milestone for the company, for sure. Our next project is going to be of similar scale, also in the Nordics. And so that's sort of the model that we're looking to uh, repeat moving forward. So we've done our own consumer research, and we found that not very many consumers are aware of vertical farming in general. So in our case, um, I think it was 1,300 Finns who were, who were surveyed and one in 10 knew what vertical farming was. The bigger issue is that the customers are motivated by where the crop is grown. So the locality and the freshness of the product. And then, of course, at that point of purchase, it's looking at the herbs themselves and seeing, you know, how fresh does it look? Does it look very full? Does it have a nice aroma? And that is what is motivating them to make the purchase. In our studies as well, we found that uh, people were willing to try vertical farming once they realized that that was sort of the results that you got from a vertically grown crop. Uh, so I think it was about 95% were willing to, to purchase. And then 60% actually even said that they were willing to pay a premium or, or a higher amount for that type of crop. So I think in Ika's case, they are emphasizing locally grown. They have their own emblem for Swedish grown product, same as we do here in Finland. Everybody's really pleased to see it's a Finnish grown crop. And then um, I think they're emphasizing, yeah, local and fresh. I'm curious from your end, you know, your stakeholders at IFPA are a, a lot of people in the traditional, you know, produce supply chains. How has that dynamic been between you know, this potentially disruptive in some circles production system versus the traditional. Is that is that a tension within the industry? 
It's a little bit of a tension. Yeah. I was talking to actually Kathy Burns, our CEO, about this very topic yesterday. And we were talking about how that when organic first came out and that we were going to start calling things organic and that there was going to be organic growers, there was tension then too, you know, and now it's just kind of part of what we do. And, you know, most growers are conventional and organic. They do both, you know, they serve the market. So I think the same thing's going to happen with indoor where people are producers, you know, they produce greens for the industry or the world. And in places where you can't grow outside or in California, as water you know gets more and more scarce, producers are going to produce. And so some of them they're going to look at, well, maybe I should do indoor because that's a good way for me to produce given the restrictions that I have you know, on inputs and land. Anything grown indoor right now, I don't know the exact percentage, but it's such a small percent of what's out there you know, compared to outdoor. So I don't think there's a big threat. I think we just need to make the pie bigger and people need to eat more leafy greens. <laughs> well, that is definitely true. I mean, I think people need to eat more produce in general. You know, one of those things I go back and forth on is like, is this solving a problem or is this just a cool solution is traceability. And I, I think if anywhere in ag traceability makes a lot of sense for a real business case, it would be in fresh produce that that has seen its cases of like foodborne illness that, you know, you really need to trace it back. And that could be very expensive, very time consuming. And every minute is worth a lot of money. But, um, you know, one of the uh, entrepreneurs you had in the program was dealing with traceability, and that was DeMuto. Uh, and what I thought was noteworthy and why I wanted to pull this next clip was because Juliet DeMuto, her mentor was uh, Judy Clark at Fresh Texas, who made it very clear how important traceability was to them. Is is there anything else we should make sure we mention before we play this next clip? No, I think they cover it pretty well and that it really is important both for food safety and for a lot of different reasons in produce that that we understand, you know, where things are grown and where they've been at any particular time in the chain. So in this clip, you're going to hear first from Judy Clark, who's the CEO at Fresh Texas, and then from Julie Escobar, who's the chief commercial officer at DeMuto. It's a cornerstone of our business. You know, every day we're bringing in raw materials and packaging that has food contact. And we have to have not just full traceability, but quick traceability. You know, this isn't the days when you'd go to a, a drawer and find paper and try to track that <laughs> through. We really need to be able to run a quick report and know exactly where we used everything by lot code up and down through the supply chain. So it's exciting to us to hear about some of the new technology coming into the space. It's going to make us even more connected with our suppliers. And certainly, as we look at the new FISMA um, Section 204 that potentially comes into play here in November, it's going to require for certain materials that we handle, you know, an even higher level of traceability um, and electronic traceability. And it's something that's going to force the hand across the industry as we wrestled with, you know, how, how much do we automate those types of activities? So I think we're excited about thinking about a platform that extends throughout our entire operation and again, up and down in that supply chain. Talking about sustainability and food waste and water consumption, it's very fancy, but how do you really track that information? And there's not a lot of data or a lot of platforms out there who can actually put it all together. So everyone in the supply chain or in the executive teams of these companies can actually make the right decisions and can inform their shareholders and stakeholders about, you know, what are we doing about water? Where are we growing this amount of product? What is the actual mm -hmm. food that we have in our farms? Mm -hmm. And what kind of decisions can we actually make to make better decisions and to hopefully have a, a much better planet, which is ultimately what we're kind of, we're all trying to target that. You know, for me, I so often come back to 
like the tension between, for example, you know, field grown produce versus vertically grown produce or indoor produce. And then the tension between like traceability, if it's if it's just a nice to have or a need to have type of thing. But I think Judy certainly makes the case pretty clear there that as someone who is interfacing with customers, that traceability thing is is significant. It's important. It is a need to have. Is that, you know, are you hearing that a lot from throughout the industry about traceability? Yeah. And I think um, she mentions about Section 204, FISMA. And I think that's an important thing to know that that, that, that that's having a big effect too. So it's not only a nice to have, it's actually a legal requirement <laughs> from the FDA. So, so FISMA 204 is, uh, it's requiring the FDA to designate foods for which additional record keeping requirements are appropriate and necessary to protect the public health. That's what that is. And it just got implemented in January of this year. And companies have three years to to kind of roll it out and comply. And so a lot of people who maybe weren't doing a lot of record keeping now have to do a lot of record keeping. And so that's another important part that it's not just a nice to have anymore. I think that area of farm compliance is boring and overlooked. You know, I, I do an almond podcast for the almond industry and you talk to them, growers will say, I want to be out with the trees and I have to spend, you know, half of my hours in the office just doing paperwork because all the compliance, these folks are all in California. So I think it's pretty heavy on compliance there. But I just think that's a kind of a boring and overlooked area for ag tech of like, could you save them half the time they're, they're spending on compliance? I'm not sure. My guess is yes. One of um, the companies, the next clip with ProVision, with Mike Monhard, his company, what they do is they walk into a company and they say, Okay, what do you do for food safety compliance? Like, what are all the forms? What do you do? Give us all your notebooks and we'll digitize it all. So that's what his company does is they go in and they digitize the whole food safety system within the company. And so it's not transparency all the way through, but it's within the company. And so there's so many forms, you know, certain things that you have to fill out certain times a year. And they have to be signed and checked off. And Mike was telling me that one of the biggest things is people forget to sign the forms. And so if it's digitized, you can't forget to sign the form. It gets popped back to you. And there's certain times a year things have to be filled out and it shows up in your inbox at that time. So I think that Mike's company is an example of really digitizing that system. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So that's something I'm really interested in. Actually, it's very relevant to my current situation because we're currently about to buy a piece of real estate and all of the emailed forms that get sent to me that I need to sign electronically, I'm just like, boy, I'm glad I'm not doing this 20 years ago when I would have had to like sign each of these, you know, by hand. It's such a nightmare. But let's go to Mike because I I find that stuff to be really interesting, you know, compliance and food safety and sort of digitizing a lot of those documents. But I also found just his comments really interesting here about decommoditization in produce and sort of this differentiation that he sees as the future of the industry. So this is Mike Meinhart. Executive VP of Sales at Provision Analytics. One of the things I love is sort of what are the challenges in an industry? And in produce, you keep hearing about water and labor as being two major issues. And water and labor and water and labor. Water and labor, water and labor. (laughs) The third thing that I think is getting missed is decommoditization. And I'm concerned about produce versus other food in the ability or the focus on decommoditizing. And what I mean by that is we've had some great decommoditization processes in produce. So so to me, organic is decommoditizing produce because the price goes up and people are willing to pay more. 
as that's got bigger, I see the push coming downwards on that. And even on organic. Right? Yeah, even yeah. on organic. Then there's small ideas like maybe it was five years ago, uh, the um, cotton candy grapes came out. Yep. And if you bought cotton candy grapes that first year, you, you know, you were paying double what you pay for regular grapes um, and quite happy to do it. <laughs> you know, uh, Halos, I think, did that at one point. And, and then I think they get pushed down. But to me, from a grower, packer, shipper standpoint, what can we do in produce to decommoditize a commodity? And what that does is it motivates and inspires consumers to pay more money for the product. If the consumer is motivated and inspired, the retailer will be willing to charge more, be willing to pay more. And then you start to create that profitability gap, which may help you handle other problems like water and labor. But if you're getting squeezed, squeezed, squeezed on every end, and then you've got other problems at that end, the water and labor and other things, it's tough to sell problems when you're being squeezed financially. So I, that's what I look at. You could use that example in wine and beer and like you can go through so many different products and, and find it. What are we doing in produce to get there? Short-term solutions are packaging, sponsorships, who's going to be the official orange of the NFL or a produce company of the NFL. Like there, There's some short-term kind of plays, but really it's got to come from product, a better product that tastes better, that is noticeably different. So Vani, I want to, I'm really curious to get your thoughts on this because uh, I'm not just trying to name drop all the podcasts I work with. That's just where I get most of my knowledge here, but I help with the Blueberries podcast. And this is a theme that's been coming up a lot. It's like, how do we create like a differentiated product and what does that mean for the industry when it's differentiated? Are you seeing that sort of across produce types of like this decommoditization or this differentiation of like premium produce? Yeah. Um, I was in Berlin recently at Fruit Logistica. So Fruit Logistica is similar to our IFPA show that we have our big global show. It's in Berlin and it's it's a global show. A lot of Europeans, a lot of people from all over the world come to that show. And this is the first time I've gone to it. And it was just amazing. Huge, huge, huge. So a lot of companies will bring out their new varieties. And so Bright Swan is a, a breeding company that they won first prize for innovation at the show because they had this different type of sweet pepper, like bell pepper type of pepper. But it tastes uh, kind of like mangoes. It's kind of sweet. And so, so it was amazing. And they are really working at trying to work all the way down to the retail level of like pulling those varieties through, which is, it's hard to do because they, they produce seeds, you know? So they're doing that. And then um, Syngenta also has a melon that got second place at, at Fruit Logistica that you can tell when it's ripe and it's very, very sweet. It grows in different places than other melons grow. And they're doing the same thing. It's called Ideal. It has a brand name. They're pulling the brand all the way through. So I, a lot of people are trying to do that, trying to, to breed for consumer traits that consumers want and then to communicate it through the chain. Hmm. But as, as time's running short, we absolutely can't talk about produce innovation without talking about labor. And I know you had at least one uh, robotics company that was a part of the Freshfield Catalyst Accelerator this year. Can you maybe talk about them? And then that's going to be the final clip that we have to share with everybody here today. Yeah. Um, Nexus Robotics is a, a Canadian company, actually, that has developed an autonomous weeder. And they they were another one of these companies that was a couple of super smart engineers, um, Tarek, who's in the, in the clip. And then they brought in 
a CEO and they're just an amazing team that was ready to launch in California. So they got a lot out of the program and made very valuable connections and have ended up I think they're spending a good portion of their time in California now, but they brought a couple of pieces of equipment down and and are really ready to launch here. The simpler a task is, the quicker it'll be automated. And also the less enjoyable a task is, also the quicker it'll be automated. Also, one of the things that I've realized talking with farmers is that the field workers don't want to be out in the field pulling weeds. They all want to be in the pack house where it's air conditioned. And so getting workers to do those kind of tasks is not the easiest. You know, if you don't enjoy doing a job, you're either going to want to get paid more for it or you're going to do something else. It'll take time, though, like each task to automate. You know, it requires years of development. So I don't think that overnight farms are just going to be swarming with robots. I think that it's going to be a slow progression and there's going to be more and more technologies that are implemented over time. And then eventually, maybe in 50 years or something like that, most of the tasks are going to be done by robots or something like that. But I don't expect there to be drastic changes over the next five years, for example. You know, robotics is an area that has been around a long time. It's been an area that I have wanted to explore on the podcast since basically we started five, six years ago. But it does feel like it's hitting a catalyst, for lack of a better term, it's fitting for our conversation here today. It feels like it's hitting it, it this moment where it's going from let's demonstrate this to like, let's actually start using this. But I liked his practicality of like, look, even though it is hitting its stride, it doesn't mean it's going to happen overnight. It's still you know, a five to 10 year process for widespread customer adoption. But I don't know, is that just something I'm feeling like from a distance here? Or is it something you're experiencing as, as you know, part of the produce industry daily? No, I think people are starting to use autonomous vehicles in the field for a variety of different things. And weeding is certainly a big one because with their particular unit, it sees weeds before you could see weeds through the naked eye. And so it's it's weeding early. So all of the advantages of that, of using less chemical or using no chemical at all, or you know, all the advantages of, of being able to do that early. And also they work a lot with organic growers because they can remove the weeds within the row of, you know, growing the food. And so there's a lot of advantages, but it's not going to happen tomorrow. You know, I mean, those pieces of equipment are, are super expensive and, and it takes a while to figure out how to run them. And, and I think the business models around them, no one's going to buy them. And so the business model kind of has to be a service. And so how do we play that out? And, you know, I think there's a lot of things to work out there. Yeah. I mean, I think that underscores the need to develop these technologies and bring them to market alongside people in the industry, which really is the heart of, of what you're doing with this Freshfield Catalyst. So like, let's get these people together and have them troubleshoot the how sort of along the way. And I think it's cool. We've we've sort of inadvertently touched on water and labor and food safety and traceability through kind of, you know, jumping around to these various uh, companies are those still kind of the big issues facing the produce industry or what other areas of innovation should we make sure we call out for companies to know that, oh, maybe I need to be over there, you know, working with them? 
Well, what we're focusing on this year is we're really focusing on climate smart agriculture and climate smart solutions all the way through the chain. And we got a $15 million grant from the USDA. And so we're using some of that um, funding and just some of that awareness to put into the accelerator this year. So that's one of the requirements. But anyone who's developing a technology that can't say it helps with climate smart you know, shouldn't be doing it. So I, I think everybody's company can fit into climate smart in some ways, even, you know, even some of these uh, labor savings, like, you know, you can talk about how that can be climate smart. So anything, I don't think that limits, but it certainly has, you know, the framing that we want for people, but no, any technology that can help with um, reducing the impacts of climate or mitigating, you know, further issues around climate change, you know, those are the types of things that we're looking for for the program this year. Awesome. Before I let you go here, Vani, let's just uh, speak directly to those who might be potential candidates for this accelerator, maybe just hit some of the fine points of the program. And then where do they go to find out if they can be a part of it? Um, just to kind of round out what's involved in the program, we, we talked about the immersion week. We talked about the mentors. Every other week, we have webinars where we bring in top people like Bruce Taylor or people from government regulatory, and, and we have a, a, a virtual webinar. And then another piece of the program is we have our large show in the fall, which is 20,000 people in the produce industry, and we give people in the accelerator a stand at the show. So they're able to meet all these people all in one place. And so those are kind of the, the main pieces of the program. We have opened up the application process. It closes March 20th and it's a really simple application. You don't have to do a video. People say it takes them like 30 minutes or so to to fill out the application. And so that's online on the IFPA website. So it's fresh produce or you can go to my LinkedIn and, and find it. Fill out the application and then it'll probably be like two or three weeks before we figure out. So one thing to know, as I talked about, is it's it's sort of more like an immersion than an accelerator. So it doesn't cost you anything to do this program, except you have to come to California for two weeks. So the first immersion uh, week, you have to pay for your way to get there. And then the week to get to our global show, which is in Anaheim, you have to pay for that. But we don't take any equity. We don't take any money. We don't give you any money. Uh, we're a nonprofit and we are just doing this to try to get really great solutions into the industry to solve our problems. You've been listening to Fresh Takes on Tech, a podcast from the International Fresh Produce Association. Keep connected with us by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you like what you've heard, please rate the show. That helps us keep delivering the latest on produce technology. Thank you for listening. Until next time.